Hello and welcome to episode 165 of Page One, the Writer's Podcast. I'm Marco. I'm Tarek. Welcome back, Tarek. It's, we've been off for a few weeks. It's been a while. It's been nice. I've had my feet up. I've, uh, it's so pretty much what you do every week, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> this is, uh, listeners, this is a comment about the fact that I do zero editing uh, or any of the marketing for the podcast. It's all falls on the mighty Marco's shoulders. So I'm very grateful. So for I've that. spent the last three weeks readying this next batch of episodes <laughs> but uh yeah no it is it is obviously good to be back uh, if this is your first time joining us on the podcast we like to speak to writers of all kinds about their writing journeys find out how they got into the industry and try and get as many hints and tips from them as possible and we do have a, a brilliant back catalogue of guests some of whom i'm amazed they agreed to come on and speak with us uh, so please do check that out and we have another brilliant guest to kick off this batch of episodes. Yeah, we do indeed. This week we're chatting with the awesome Jack Jordan, who um, is probably most well-known, I think, or certainly I first saw him with uh, Do No Harm, was his kind of medical thriller moral mm. dilemma book, um, which came out uh, in 2022, I think it was. Um, and uh, his latest book is Conviction, which is a... He's kind of taken that kind of same thriller, moral dilemma, tension and put it in the legal world yeah. um, this time instead of the medical world. And it's fantastic. Yeah. And, and he's got a really interesting journey because he sort of started writing. He tells us, you know, he had uh, agoraphobia, was sort of stuck in his flat when he was 17, started writing at that point and then went on to self-publish to huge success, sold hundreds yeah. of thousands of books, picked up by a trad publisher didn't quite work out and he almost had to start again at that point but uh, that's when he decided to sort of come up with a package and you know we do talk about that about mm-hmm. the marketability of a book which can sometimes be I suppose a dirty dirty thing to yeah, talk about to some writers you know it's it, art Marco you can't market exactly but you know he, he thought long and hard about how he could sell that book as well as writing the book that he wanted to write because both things yeah. are important and obviously went on to a huge success with Do No Harm. So it's a really interesting chat. So we'll get straight into it after a quick advert for our writer's notebook. And then we'll be back at the end of the podcast with a bit more chat and to let you know about next week's guest. But for now, on with the podcast. The blank page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. 
And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made page one. Page one is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project, whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic or any other kind of story. We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. Did you always want to be a writer? I love this question because I think a lot of people say yes to this, but I think in truth, it depends. Thinking back to when, when did we ask ourselves this question of, did we always know? I think sometimes a lot of the time when you're creative and whichever field that you want to express yourself through, you know, you're going to go down that route. However, I think when it comes to upbringing, when it comes to society and how it treats art and things, I don't think I let myself think I wanted to be a writer until I was 17. So I'd always loved writing as a child and in school and I always loved reading, but I never made that correlation between what I loved and the books on the shelf as a job opportunity. Um, But it was only when I uh, had agoraphobia at 17 and I was locked in the house for a year, um, I returned to my love of writing and just to pass the time because I didn't have anything else to do. Um, and then I started writing just to pass the time. And then six months later, I'd written a whole book. And it was once I wrote the end, that's when I realised I've wanted to do this all my life and mm-hmm. I won't ever do anything else. So I think for me, it was kind of an awakening of circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, but deep down, I'd always been a storyteller. I just didn't know if I was allowed to be one, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think I'm right in saying that there were signs of that when you were younger. You, did you not um, publish a book when you were six and a half? <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this has become a legendary little story. Yeah, so my, uh, my mum found, um, she was moving house and she found a story I'd written at six and a half. Um, about a, yeah, a wicked witch who was married to a giant and um, these two poor children who tried to survive them and it had a perilous end. I, I, I think even then I knew I was destined to be in the thriller genre because I was just evil even at six and a half. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, um, so the book that you, were, that, that you wrote at the age of 17, was, did that end up being, I suppose two questions there, was that, did it end up being a kind of therapy almost? Is it, was it a way to work through what you were going through then? And did it, what happened to that book afterwards? Really good question. It was a, I think for me, I I actually had a really poor education. So I was coming, I was learning writing and actually I was learning spelling, grammar, punctuation whilst I was writing and learning about the industry. So it was a real in-depth few years to say actually. But that first book, I think I knew that that was me finding my feet and allow myself to find out what kind of storyteller I was. so that is definitely in a drawer, never to be seen again. Um, so <laughs> funny, funny enough, my debut novel was techni- that was published is technically my fifth book. Right. Um, I went through a lot of process. I went through a process of writing, yeah, four books that never saw the light of day, and quite rightly, looking back. Um, but it was that was my process of finding my my voice, my style, my uh, the genre. I think as well because when I first started, I was just writing to write um, and writing to tell stories. I didn't have much knowledge um of 
which genre, which area of the genre and subgenre, and where it would fit into a market as a product. I think I was very much just finding my feet as a creative. And I think mm-hmm. by the time I got to my debut, that's when I really understood what the market were needed from writers as well as what we needed as creatives. Yeah. And uh, were you, were you, while you were writing those early books and sort of finding your voice and, and genre and things like that, were you also experimenting with sort of form or length as well? Because I think I'm right in saying that any, anything for you started as a short story. Is is that right? Oh, so anything for her. That was... Anything for her, um, yeah. Oh, that, no, that's all right. I, I can't... Oh, yeah. So when I first started, so... And I'm sorry, Tariq, I completely forgot. I didn't finish that question. So it was an outlet of kind of what I was going through and things. So I started writing anything for her on my Blackberry in the middle of the oh, night. Wow. I think I think it was like five in the morning. I was, you know, with agoraphobia, you haven't got anywhere to go or anything to do. So you don't sleep. So insomnia is kind of part and parcel with that. Um, so I was just laying there wide awake at five in the morning and then thought to pass the time, I'm just going to, I had this story rattling around in my head. And at the time, I didn't know I had the license to do anything about it. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what to do with it. So I just thought, oh, I'm going to write this down. And I think I probably wrote 500 to 1,000 words in the BlackBerry Note app um, and then went to sleep. And the next day I thought, actually, I'll write a little bit more. I write... So I almost tricked myself into writing mm-hmm. a whole book. And even when I was writing okay. it, I didn't allow myself to tell myself I was writing a story it was only at the end when I was like okay now I've done it I can call, I'm a writer now and I think mm-hmm. so yeah it was kind of yeah it was that awakening period but yeah no and you're totally right it was that I think living vicariously through my characters who could be on the outside world why I couldn't it was definitely yeah. a real therapeutic time and and you you once once you had a book that you were sort of happy with um you chose to go down the self-publishing route initially um what what made you choose that path as opposed to the, the sort of traditional publishing path? Yeah, so I was, I mean, I'd always want, my goal was always to be traditionally published. Um, but as we all know, it's such a hard industry to get into. Mm-hmm. So I, by the time I got to my fifth book that I'd written, which became my debut, Anything For Her, I had tried, so my first novel, I knew it was going to be a draw novel. I knew that was just me finding my feet. Um, and then for my second, third and fourth that I'd written, I was definitely thinking ahead of uh, approaching agents, um, trying to get in that way. And uh, each way I'd find myself getting a little bit closer, but not signing that contract and not getting uh, not getting the, the steps I wanted to take. So when it came to anything for her, I thought, right, if it, if I can't actually I didn't even try. I didn't try and go to agents or um, publishers. I decided with this one, I thought, actually, I'm going to do it on my own. Uh, with self-publishing because at the time so that was published in 2015 and at the time there was a real self-publishing boom going on mm. um there was so i remember like the big name at the time was rachel abbott and she had just created this whole brand and she'd done it all of herself and she was doing so so amazingly well and i thought okay well authors are doing this themselves and they're finding that way in and then you could see a lot of the time if you had success with self-publishing then you then got through traditional that way so it was always my route as kind of a way in and then to yeah instead of keep knocking at the door that wasn't letting me in I found a window and um and it was I mean I worked really hard but it was a very successful window I think after so I self-published my first um in 2015 and that sold well um, and then I self-published my second uh, in 2016, and that did very well. So by the end of 2016, my two books had sold over 100,000 copies. That's, That's incredible. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. And uh, what's your approach with that? Did you do? Did you like grab the bull by the horns and do marketing, book cover, all the stuff that you you have to you have a team doing when you're 
going down the kind of normal route, but when you do it the self pub route, you do it yourself. Did you do everything and jump, tick every box type of thing? Definitely. So I, so when I did, when I um, embarked upon it, I saw, and again, kind of like what Rachel Abbott did. Hers was incredibly professional the way she'd done it. She had mm-hmm. treated it like a business. You could see the brand recognition with the covers. You could you could see that it had been um, not only professionally ed- professionally edited and pr- proofread and things, but typeset when it comes to the paper uh, paperbacks. Yeah. And she had just, she had done it to the quality that traditional publishers were doing. Yeah. So I knew that if I wanted to be taken seriously, and if I wanted to um, have a success in this way, I had to treat it like my own business. So I looked at what traditional publishers were doing for their authors at the time and thought, okay, well, I will do it on a scale that I could afford. Um, and so I took a loan out. Uh, I didn't have the money um, in, a, in my bank account or anything. I um, <laughs> So I, I was 22. What was I doing? I was, a, I was a care worker at the time. So I was doing day shifts and night shifts. I'd be writing on my night shifts while I put everyone to bed and supported them. Um, and then, yeah, sleep the day away and do it all over again. Um, and been planning my business as well. So I would, um, I created, I made relationships with bloggers, uh, did blog tours. I uh, got a professional cover designer um, that did freelance and previously worked traditional publishing, had typesetting, editors, proofreaders, um, did all my accounts. So yeah, I really treated it like a business um, and social media marketing was phenomenal as well. I mean, that's a, that's a beast that changes constantly. So what you do one year might not work the next yeah. year, but at the time yeah. I really found my window and it worked really well. I mean, of, of those various things, you know, it might not be diff- it might be difficult to sort of pick one out and say this worked this didn't work and that sort of thing but you know reaching out to book bloggers doing sort of blog tours and things like that did that have a big impact as a po- as compared to the sort of standard marketing social media marketing things like that Do you know what i think they go hand in hand so i i would so there's a um book club on facebook called um the book club on facebook and it's run by the amazing tracy fenton um, and that is a gigantic, like tens of thousands of community of book bloggers and readers. And they're just absolutely phenomenal. And I was lucky enough to become a member of that. Um, and they had a gathering uh, where you could meet everyone and I met other authors. So I, and I networked that way um, and slowly built up my social media following. Um, I made real friends through this process. I think a lot of people can be, they look at book bloggers or they look at uh, uh, peers and they think, oh, how can we work together as a business? I think a lot of the time actually just approach it as making new friends. And I think mm-hmm. that because this this industry is very lonely, we need friends. We need mm-hmm. to have our allies and things. And I think so actually if you're there to just create meaningful relationships where they get a book they want to read and you get to get a review, I think it, if you if it comes from an organic, authentic place, I think it works so well. And I think then you have supporters. So when you've got, when you put a post on Facebook or when you put a post on Instagram um, and you're boosting that um, in marketing, you already have your supporters there. So it shows that there's interest. So then it gains more interest and then it becomes word of mouth and things like that. So Mm -hmm. I think I would say they come hand in hand. I think definitely, I think when it comes to um, spending money and stuff. So I, so with my first book, I got a loan out to cover the first and then I made all that back and then a small profit. And then I put all of that back in again for my second book plus the profit. And then it did even better. So I think for anyone doing that route, I think we have to see it as an investment in our career rather than an expense. I think a lot of people can be, um, uh, they can be put off by investing money in marketing and things like that, but it, it pays off. And I Mm -hmm. think, and it, and if it doesn't, you learn, you learn why it didn't. So you do the better next time. So I think, yeah, yeah, it's definitely an investment in your career. And you think, you know, there's a way that kind of 
self-pub versus traditional pub and there's these kind of two routes in and you know they both have their pros and cons but do you think to the to the average reader do they even know where a book comes from or whether it's been traditionally pubbed or not you know as 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 you say as long as it looks professional and it's been typeset and it's a, 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 a professional front cover etc do, do a lot of people care or do they just want a good book and perhaps even know where it's come from and what route it's had through the industry Exactly. And that's a, that's a question I've never been asked before. And that's an absolutely amazing question because the, especially when it comes to ebook readers, Mm -hmm. they don't really know the difference. I mean, most of them don't see the cover. They Mm -hmm. see it when they buy it and then they never see it again because it doesn't come up. And so it, I mean, actually, Kindle can be a little bit detrimental because then you they say, oh, I think I've read that, but they can't remember where because they haven't seen the cover and things. Um, but yeah, so I think especially also, I think when it comes to self published and traditional publishing, and there's so many, different facets of traditional publishing there's um digital publishing there is um uh there's hardback releases there's paperback releases there's supermarket commercial books there is waterstones literary there is all these different areas where you're going to be seen differently um and all have different readers readerships and uh areas of customers you're going to get so really i think when it comes to having when it comes to being online and so when people buy kindle on um amazon or when they buy ebooks on apple or where they buy paperbacks from amazon and things that route they're not going to see the difference unless there's a quality difference there and mm. that is if people yeah. might not have invested as much in the self-publishing area um and getting it up to par with the same traditional publishing i think in um for, so for anyone listening that is keen on doing this route there is um a i used editors and proofreaders from i i believe it's editors and proofreaders um Oh no, I can't remember the name of it. There's an institution where freelance people that are accredited to edit and proofread your book that also work with other publishers, they're part of this institution and mm. you can um, contact them directly. So you get it on the same par um, as traditional publishers. So they're not really going to see the difference. Yeah, absolutely. And I do think that in, in recent times that what, I mean, there obviously is still an element of, of snobbery in in the publishing world, but um it does seem to have the gap seems to have closed a bit and mm-hmm. you know you are getting what are very professional self-published or indie published books as as they say um compared to the traditionally published ones so and as Tarek says the, the difference to a reader is probably negligible as long as it's done in a professional way really Totally. And I think also I think at the end of the day we're all just looking for a story and to escape yeah. and to distract and I think if a story works for someone. The only way they're really going to see it if they actively look to see who the publisher is on a listing yeah. online. And most of us don't do that. So you're not going to know the difference. And I think, so yeah, I think it's just, it's all down to connecting through a story and with characters and escaping our busy daily lives. And I think it's just a welcome escape and you can have that through any route. And I think also, I think as well with snobbery, there's there's always been that distinction between self-publishing and traditional publishing, but there's all, it, it's kind of, you even get it in traditional publishing in different levels. Yeah. I think it's so fascinating how when I've gone through my career, I've gone through um, uh, self-publishing to an independent, independent publisher to uh, one of the main ones. And I think you just get snobbery from different areas and for different reasons. And the truth yeah. is we're all in it together. We're all storytellers and we're all being enjoyed by the same people. So I think it's kind of, it's, I think so if anyone is experiencing that feeling of snobbery, don't worry about it because everyone gets it from a different area of the business. Um, I think it's just let people think what they want to think and just we know the journey we're on. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I think that's so true because it's very easy to kind of to say, 
well, I want to go with these guys because these guys are the good guys and these guys are the bad guys. And ultimately, they're all massive conglomerate companies owned by like probably pretty nasty people at the top, or whatever. You know, they, <laughs> yeah. it's not like they're any of them are they're, they're all in it to make money, etc. And it is a business and stuff. And it's easy to lose a kind of focus and think, and you kind of get in your tribal. You know, everyone's very into their one, what two possible answers, and there's no middle ground, etc. Right now, so yeah, it's a, uh, it's interesting. I think that's that, that's a good way of way of, way of saying about it. I think that is it's. No matter which way you go, there's always folk throwing shade on you. So, hopefully, yeah, one works for you. Um, and and so did you? Did you? Obviously, you didn't have an agent at this point when you were going through self-publishing yourself. So, where did you get an agent? What was your route into that part of it? So, I and this, I'd always recommend this for anyone self-publishing who wants to go into the additional publishing route. I had um, in my Twitter header, um, and that's definitely the most. Um, that's the that's definitely the platform that you're going to get find connections with publishing professionals and the best way is they can communicate with you so in my bio i had a inquiries email address so if anyone wanted to get in touch they can they could um ironically i didn't check it for a month because i hadn't had any an email for about nine ten months other than spam i thought okay well i'm and i just forgot about it for a month and i went back and i saw i had an email from an editor at harper collins uh they were very interested they'd send my backlist it's in how well it had done um, and they wanted to have a meeting. Um, and so, of course, I scrambled. and thought, well, I haven't got an agent to help broker this. Um, so I ran around the houses trying to find an agent. And ironically, and we were just talking about Snobbery, that it still, it was then, it was still there then. And it's, uh, it, it's just an extra hurdle because I had 100,000 copies uh, sold under my belt and an editor ready to do a deal. And it's, I still found it hard to find an agent who wanted to broker it. Um wow. Because it came from self-publishing roots and things like that. So it was definitely still That's that snobbery. Because you would think that would be like a ready-made yeah, yeah. Exactly. money off this. You know, yeah. deal, I'll get my 10% with her straight away. That's, that's an easy sale. Exactly. Literally, there was a, there was a editor in one hand and 100,000 sales in the other. And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was quite baffled by it, to be honest. Um, but then, yeah, so I found an agent. Um, and then, and ironically, I didn't end up going with HarperCollins. I went with a different publisher called, Cor- uh, the imprint called Corvus of Atlantic, which is quite a big independent publisher. Um, and that's, uh, yeah, because it, it was just offered a bit more money and things like that. Um, and so it was the right fit at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then, so I did three, I did two uh, traditionally published paperbacks with uh, that publisher, as well as an ebook novella as well. Um, so that was definitely my first step in traditional publishing. Um, and I think actually, I think self-publishing is, it is difficult and it is, um, you do feel like a lone wolf, but I went into that publishing arena with a lot of knowledge that I I think a lot of debuts who have come straight from the slush pile might not have had. So I did feel really equipped, um, with kind of going in there, but yeah, it was exciting. Definitely. And, and did the, how did the publisher approach it? Because we've spoken to other people who have, self-pubbed before and then they get picked up maybe after one book that's done okay and the new publisher sometimes says right this is your debut we want to market you as a debut author now and kind of brush the the self-publishing stuff under the carpet I mean uh, given your success did they do that with you or did they did they try and make a a thing of the fact that you'd sold a hundred thousand books already that's right. So yeah, they um, that what they they actually bought my backlist. So they bought my self published titles off me as part of the deal. Oh, right. um, okay. And ironically, I've just sold them again. Um, so it's <laughs> I think as long as you, it's really I think it's 
And because I wanted to have traditional all on the table, I think it also helps when, unfortunately this didn't happen, but at the time what the plan was to happen is when I um, had this deal with uh, my first traditional publisher, it was to buy the backlist and then have brand recognition with covers and you can all have it by the same designer and you can all have it on the same system. That was what the plan was going to be. The covers ended up not changing. Um, But I think having it under one roof, they can then, so for instance, publishers will put you up for promotions and things. So like Kindle, uh, Kindle uh, monthly uh, news, uh, you know, I'm sure what's it called like a kindle first is it or something like that yeah and um and yeah and like monthly deals where it might be 99p through yeah. amazon they might choose it and so i thought if it's all in one place then they can look after that um and i think also spinning plates of having self-publishing in one place and traditional in the other um i was going to drop one so i thought I have it all under one roof mm-hmm. um so i actually had them buy my backlist um and but we instead of marketing it as my debut and changing my name we marketed it as my traditional debut. So we made it right. quite big about that. Um, um, but they were very they were very happy that I came with an audience already. Mm. Um, so I think their first tagline when I came out with my book, uh, it was Jack is back. So they really wanted to lean into yeah, what yeah. I already had. Yeah. Uh, and let's say Jack is back because there was a bit of a, um, uh, I think what I did learn going from self-publishing to traditional is that it's very slow. Traditional publishing is very slow in comparison to self-publishing when you can decide what you yeah. want to do and when you want yeah. to do it. Yeah. Um, so there was a bit of a lag in publication. So it was about a two-year gap, um, okay. which can be quite difficult for a brand, um, especially when one readership, my self-publishing readership was very ebook focused. Um, ironically, now my readership is very print focused mm. um so now i just need to find out how to marry those two together <laughs> <laughs> and and as someone who's you know you've had that experience of the self-pub route and the traditional pub route now what's your views on you know how did how did you feel how did you find it when you were going down this traditional publication route? you know did you find that yeah you're getting less of a cut per book in terms of sales but was there more of a security there than you'd had before you know was there ups and downs what was your what was your feeling on it um, I think so. I've had it's been quite a long journey. Um, so I, when I went from self-publishing to traditional publishing, and I think I think we all fall into the trap of thinking that the journey to publication, and then you sign the deal and it's the end. When actually you just sign up for a completely different journey, and I think it always comes to the to an author as a surprise because we're all we almost start at square one and we're building up again but within mm-hmm. publishing so we've yeah. we've made one milestone but we almost thought that we'd reach the finish line only to see a second marathon um and so i i think i went into it with rose tinted glasses and thought success is around the corner i can build off of my self-publishing it didn't work out that way it was quite a difficult um it it wasn't the right fit in in um in truth um okay. so I ended up leaving um, that publisher, um, and and that's not to say that that publisher is bad. I just it, the experience didn't match up what we needed it to yeah. match up. Yeah. Um, so I well, actually, it was quite difficult. So at the end of um, 2019, I found myself back, at, and it has been ten years since I started with Agrophobia. Uh, back to square one. I parted ways with my agent, uh, who was slimming her list, and I parted ways with my publisher. Um, and so I found myself, and then we went into the 2020 when lockdown happened, we're all stuck in our houses. It was this very cyclical moment where I found myself stuck in my house, <laughs> back at square one. And I thought, well, the only thing I can do here is write because that's what I did before and that's what I'll do again. And that book I wrote was Do No Harm, which has mm-hmm. kind of set everything off uh, on, on this yeah. amazing journey I'm on now. Um, so it was this really, really crazy journey of 
yeah, of 10 years of looping back round, but then everything that I'd kind of ever wanted happened. I signed, um, and everything I was told like, wasn't going to happen, happened. So I ended up signing with my dream agent, um, Madeline Milburn, um, who's such an amazing agent in the UK. Um, and then signed with Simon and Schuster. Um, and it, and all the, all the exciting buzzwords you want to hear where it went to auction and it was one of the big deals and yeah. it, everything. And I think, and that's uh, what I love to tell this part of the story, I think, because a lot of focus on traditional published authors is sales record. Mm-hmm. And if you have one bad book, then your career's over and all these. And to be honest, that kind of happened for me for a blip. I had one book that didn't sell as well because it didn't get into a supermarket and there wasn't much else that could be done. Um, and so I did have that period of your career's over, but I think if I, I, I looked at doing a harmony, it was a story that had been bugging me for ages. Um, and I knew that I, well, I, what I said to myself was, okay, if I've got a bad, if I've got a bad sales track record, cause the hundred thousand sales don't mean anything now. Cause they're few books yeah. ago. They're thinking about the last one. Um, so I thought, okay, well, I need to write a book and write a hook and write a package that they can't say no to. They need to be able to look past this problematic blip mm-hmm. and see um, confidence in it anyway. And luckily, that's what happened. I, so when I first tried to find an agent, I'd almost had to beg one to come on. Whereas this time, I I, I submitted, I created my business package of synopsis, um, and I only sent the first three chapters out um, that I'd worked on very solidly in my pitch and things. So I thought almost as the business plan first and a taster with the first three chapters. Um, and had six offers of agents um, and actually had to stop. I said, to, uh, and I actually had to stop. I think I uh, sent to about 12 and I actually had to cut it off at six and said, I'm going to pick out these six, um, which was so different to my first yeah. experience where yeah. I had to, oh yeah, beg to have one. Um, and then, yeah, and then it went to auction so I could really just choose. Um, uh, and ironically, within that auction, and this is why publishing is it's so small, it's, it's such a small world, and it's that's why it's so amazing to have network and contacts. The first p- publisher that tried to sign me way back when, through that email in the Twitter bio, wanted to buy me again and was a part of that auction. <laughs> right. So it's amazing how small world yeah. it is now, but there's, we've got very long memories, so we, re- we remember each other and stay in touch. Um, yeah, and then everything happened so, with Do No Harm. And it was kind of, yeah, so I've had a crazy journey, but I just I like to tell that part because if anyone is ever stuck in a in a rut of, oh, my sales track record, you've just got to prove them wrong. And I think that's always been my ethos is, I think when I was 17, stuck in my house, um, uh, and a really poor education, I used to tell people I wanted to be a writer and they'd laugh. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I'll prove you wrong. Then I was mm-hmm. self-published and I thought, well, you won't get traditional publishing because they're snobbery. Well, I'll prove you wrong. Then mm-hmm. I had, then I did well in traditional publishing and then I, and then I dropped, and then the ball was dropped and thought, well, you'll never get this deal or that deal. You'll never get to where you want to go. And you prove them wrong. I think it, it, you, with this industry, you have to be very robust and um, re- it, take roll with the punches because there'll be a lot of them. I think it, it, this, uh, we're, our, our, the foundation of publishing is built on rejection from every side mm-hmm. and we, and you get it for the rest of your, I mean, you get rejections now, it, even when you're at the top, you get rejections. Mm-hmm. And I think you, it, you just learn to be very strong, very independent and know your worth. And I think that's, a, it, it, so you have a kind of personal journey alongside the publishing journey. And I think it's, yeah, it's it's interesting. And I think we all get there. I think we just at different times, but it's really good to have a network around you, particularly with other authors who can share their experiences and all podcasts like this, where you can listen in and know that it's there's no one route to where you want to go. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it is interesting. You know, a lot of authors have said a similar thing, which is, you know, you've just got to, 
you know, if you if it's what you really want to do, you'll have to write anyway. You know, that's what you want to do, and also you just have to keep going, and you will get people saying no. And as you say, even when you're published, even when you're a successful author, you'll get people saying no, or people giving you reviews that are one star and all this sort of stuff. And you just kind of, as you say, roll with the punches and and keep going. And it is, it's a difficult thing, I think, when you know it's not like other jobs really. Because it is such a personal thing, you're putting yourself out there, and I think that's where the difficulty in sort of dealing with the rejections or the no's or the one star reviews and stuff comes from. Because it it feels like a personal slight against you, I think, more than it would if you were working in an office or something mm-hmm. like that. Totally, it, yeah. No, you're so right. I think you know, I I I think you know the more books you do, I think there's this. You've, you almost find a complacency within that. I think when I first, so I used to read every single review and it, all, because we all get one star, so I'd read them because I would think, I would read them and think there's feedback to be had here, there's constructive mm-hmm. criticism um, with tears running down my face. No, <laughs> 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 I, I've, I've got to find the way I can, you know, be better, be better. Um, but then by the time I got to my fifth book, I remember, so if someone wasn't happy with one thing in one book, I'd try and change it in the other. But then the people who were happy with the last book weren't happy with the change I'd made. Yeah. And by my fifth book, I realised I can't please everyone. Mm. And I think a lot of writers, uh, we're, you know, we're introverted, we're insular, especially with our own worlds we create. So we're people pleasers. We want everyone to be happy. We tend to put ourselves last. And I realised after my fifth book, I can't please everyone. And it was a really freeing moment. So now when I write a book don't get me wrong I think about oh someone might not like this and someone might not like that mm. but I'm better at turning off that voice that tells me uh people might not like this you've almost got to write for you yeah. um and and the market and all these things but ultimately know that when it's out there you can't do anything about the reception of it um and so I let myself I, re- I always so on NetGalley for instance I'll read the first reviews which is usually lovely I think yeah I've done it I, people like my book then when the first horrible one comes in, and I say horrible because that's the personal thing. It doesn't have to be horrible. It's just the yeah. um, the critical one, we'll say. Yeah. Um, I will read the first one. And I think, right, I'll read one. And I don't read any more after that. Not even the good ones. I just think, right, I've had my fill. I've read some nice ones. I've read a nasty one. Uh, personally, it feels nasty. And then I just think, right, and now it's out there. And the reviews aren't for me. They're for other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the, yeah, it, it, there's a bit of freedom in that. Um, because you can't please everyone, and yeah, and it's kind of a yeah, really lovely feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see. Well, that. Um, conviction is your latest book, which came out just a couple of weeks ago, I think, at time of recording, uh, beginning of early May. Um, and so, so why don't you tell us what the book's about, and um, you know how you came up with it, with the idea for it? Yeah, sure. So, conviction is out on twenty second of June, um, and oh, so I'm trying to think. Oh, I, I was trying to from. Oh, do you know, it might have been. I think we, we it was originally May. So I think we we moving around a bit. So, yeah, so 22nd of June. Um, so Conviction is about, is the story of defence barrister Neve Harper, who lands the trial of her career, defending a man accused of killing his family, uh, but who insists of his innocence. But leading up to the trial, she's approached by a man on the tube who reveals a secret from her past and makes her choose. Either she must throw the trial and send her client to prison or her own criminal past will be exposed. Um, so it's another moral dilemma from Do No Harm, which came out last year. Um, I've kind of, yeah, I've, I'm, I've always been fascinated by um, moral dilemmas and the human moral compass. I think it dictates so much of what we do and who we are. 
So as an evil writer, I like to put that to the test <laughs> and get a character and throw them in the middle of impossible situations and see what they'll do. Um, but I think ultimately it's what the reader can, we can all relate to. We can all put ourselves in that character's shoes and ask our own questions, what would I do? Mm. And I love it because the amount of different answers that come up. So when I'm writing, I think, well, I might do this. A reader is having a completely different thought process of what they would do mm-hmm. because it is that fight or flight moment. And I just find it fascinating. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, is that is that what you start with when you're when when the first sort of germs of an idea are are, are building in your head is it is it that sort of moral dilemma is that what comes first or is it a character or a sort of plot idea how how does it begin for you or does it change from book to book i think it's changed throughout my career actually and i think and i always i always um it's important that i say it because i think it's really um it's really integral to kind of knowing the business but it sounds colder so I think now when I look at books I understand and this is what I kind of did with Do No Harm and how I packaged it and how I was saying to myself I can't give publishers a reason to say no mm-hmm. um, I was treating it and looking at it like a product and I think and it's that's a scary word to say to a creative because we love the reason why we tell stories is because we're creative we're uh, we've got big hearts. We want to explore ourselves. We want to explore the world. Um, but uh, but then marrying that creativity with publishing, which is a business, and treat our books like products and deal with retailers. I think marrying those two together is where I found my stride in publishing. And really, yeah, and having those two together. So now, when I'm coming up with an idea, I run it through my kind of uh, process of creating the hook the first thing I do is create the hook because not only do I it shows that I have a good story on my hands but also I'm wondering how marketing and sales are going to and my publisher ultimately are going to sell that book mm-hmm. to the retailers and to readers um and that helped because I was a Waterstones bookseller for a time as well and I used to have to hand sell books uh, with a hook so I thought okay well I've got to be able to do that and my publisher has to do that and the bookseller's the other end um, so I, when I'm coming up with a story, I will be thinking of the moral dilemma I want to explore next. Um, and it will be pl- very plot based first. And then I think about the character that I'm going to drop in. Um, and usually I think, well, if I put a, a character in a situation that they're not going to deal with it very well, or so for instance, with Juno Harm, it's about a heart surgeon, uh, Dr. Anna Jones, whose child has been abducted and she's given an ultimatum. Either she has to kill a patient on the operating table or she'll never see her son again. So essentially, she has to choose between the love of her child and her Hippocratic Oath. So the character that I built for that plot situation was um, someone who thrived on control. And she's in a situation where she's completely out of control. Mm-hmm. So by ethos, she has to, she's, she's almost like a god in the operating theatre where she, has, she saves lives. It's all down to her. Uh, the team that she's working with all look to her for answers. And suddenly she doesn't have any of the answers and she has to scramble to do this impossible, make this impossible choice. So I think sometimes it's the it's the predicament and plot first because I'm thinking of product, I'm thinking of moral dilemma, but then my creativity can flourish when I think about the character I can put in, because um, that's when you can explore humanity and pull that apart. And so yeah, that's my that's my usual journey at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the uh, do no harm. I thought was excellent. I really really enjoyed oh, that book. And oh, thank you. Um, and listen to you talk about how you come up with the kind of idea or the initial. Uh, germ of the story etc for 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 both that and for conviction I, I, i'm definitely struck by you can tell you've gone through a self-pub route because you, you you think about things in the kind of market 
marketability way, which I think a lot of authors wouldn't necessarily think about. They'd be like, well, when, this is the book I want to write and it's up for someone else to work out where it sits on a shelf or what the hook is or how you blurb it in order to in a pitch it in one line, etc. But that's obviously something that's quite important to you. Now. And I assume that's coming from a background of when you're doing it yourself, you need to always know how do I pitch this book? How do I sell this book to a reader on the Kindle store? Definitely, yeah. And I think I think one thing that I learned going into this was we are essentially before the publisher and the agent we are the first salesperson of this book we're the one who've got to pitch this book to an agent to a publisher and if we can make that the easier you can make that job in terms of kind of a product you're putting in front of them mm. that is packaged in a market in it, you want to make the marketing team very happy because then they're going to yeah. be so excited to promote it because it's already there i think yeah. a lot so with publishing as we all, as uh, the three of us know, like people sit in a room and meetings will come together. And go, we love this story. How are we going to sell it? And they're trying to figure out how to do it and things like that. If we go, if if we as the writers figure that out ahead of time and go, look, this is the vision I've got. This is the hook. This is if we if we reel them in that way, then they know they can reel in other people. And I just think it it helps us harness our. I think it just harnesses more control and more uh, vision. And I think it just makes, I, I always look for the easiest yes. I don't want people to go, hmm, I wonder. I want them to go, yes, we need that. Yeah. And I yeah. think having that marketing look at it really, it helps jump over so many hurdles. I mean, I was told uh, my career was essentially over and then I came up with a package that they couldn't resist. Mm. And that, and I think that is a really strong way that authors can look at their books. We, I think... And it's almost kind of like the writing process as well. So with the first draft, right, is a, uh, this is certainly mine anyway, where I'll be writing to figure out the story for myself. So after I've done the hook and I know where I'm going, then I'm doing that, fir- the same as everyone, doing the first uh, draft slog of trying to figure out what I'm doing and what goes where and it's a mess. Uh, but then when I do the editing, I'm it's a much more methodical way of looking at the book. I've separated myself from the creative process. And I think that's kind of where the marketing lies as well. So once you've separated yourself from the editing, then you can see about the sales pick, uh, yeah. package and things. So yeah, I just think it's a, it's a benefit. It's re- I found it very beneficial to have that look at it. Yeah, and also I think, you know, authors can... You, you, you're not compromising your your creativity or, no. or you, yourself by thinking about where will this sit on a shelf? You know, if that's... If you're wanting to sell your book, it is a, it's a thought that you should be having really because otherwise as you say you're not going to persuade anyone to to pick it up and and publish it for you so i don't think it's the the terrible thing that sometimes it gets portrayed as to think you know i'm not saying you should ever write directly for the market yeah because it changes so yeah yeah but um having a thought about it having a thought about how you're going to pitch a book is always important i think Yeah. yeah And I think also, I think so. it's kind of, it's marrying the two because also you have to, like you say, you can't write for the market because by the time you have, the, the trend has changed. Yeah. Um, so I remember when I wrote Do No Harm, people were, um, there wasn't any big uh, thriller, uh, medical thrillers on at the time. And I think there was this um, perception that because they're not, they, they don't sell very, uh, they don't, there's not loads, of, it's not like its own subgenre that is coming out all the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think some were hesitant. And now um, there's loads on the market and because it's become a little bit of a trend, but then that trend will die down and a different one will pick up. Yeah. And so it's, it's, yeah. So I think you also got to have that bravery of knowing 
actually, no, I believe in this. So it was, that was a bit of a gamble, but I think I was, I, I think I, I was, I felt very, I had a conviction, pardon the pun, about um, my package that I had in terms of selling it. But then you just got to find the right home in terms of believing that that is something that they can take with and run. So I think, yeah, everything's a gamble. We can't, we can't predict everything, but I think, yeah, having, um, having the best possible package that you can sell or the drop of a hat um, is really handy. And it also yeah. it makes your life easier when you've got a hook in the back pocket because every reader, when you go to a literary festival or when you go, or when you go Tesco shopping and someone says, oh, you bump into someone at the till and they say, oh, so what do you do? You say you're a writer. What's your book about? Oh, well, it's about this. And then this happens. And then 20 minutes yeah. later, you're still trying to explain <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. If you've got that hook in your back pocket, it, it just saves so much hassle. You can just give them that elevator pitch and then we don't have to worry or over explain and they get the gist. It's just, oh yeah, I just, it's become a, a my routine and it's, yeah, it's a lot less hassle. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to ask about the, about the research that you must do for your novels when you, when you sit down to actually write them. You know, do you spend a lot of time looking into medical procedures and how things work in an operating theatre and the same thing with a courtroom, how the reality of a courtroom works, who plays which role, etc. Yes. I mean, I, I, I'm a self-confessed geek. I love research. I love the reading. I love, I, I think because if it's a, uh, an area that I'm fascinated by, I get, I get a real kick out of learning about it. Um, so when I, when I did, uh, when I started, well, I first came up with do no harm because I had a medical procedure myself. Um, and, uh, I was going, I was just about to go under and, I suddenly thought to myself, I don't know anyone in that room. And I'm just completely trusting them from, with my welfare. Mm-hmm. And then when I came out the other end, I was lucky. Great, at... final thought to have there as you're drinking. <laughs> <laughs> and then put under. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then I woke up and the procedure went really well. And everyone was, of course, lovely. But once I came around from the medication, I just couldn't help but wonder what could have happened mm-hmm. if it had gone differently. So I had that personal experience that kind of created the idea but then I put it off for a while because I was intimidated by, and again, imposter syndrome, which we all have at some point, if not all the time, <laughs> I hope, because I do. Um, yeah. But with the kind of medical aspect, I thought, I don't, I've never, you know, I had a poor education. I don't, I, I didn't do very well in science. I'm not a medical, do- I'm not a doctor in any way or a consultant. I don't know what I'm talking about. But then it just kept niggling away. And then I was at that point of my career where I just, this story had been taunting me. I needed a book that was going to work really well. So I thought, well, I've got time. We're all locked away. Why don't I just read into it? And I just was fascinated by reading into these procedures and reading up on how consultants exist outside the operating theatre and the human beings and this pressure it must be. So I just read so many books, textbooks that cost an arm and a leg uh, about heart surgeries, um, autobiographies by consultants to get the ins and outs of their lives. And what? And even though I'm squeamish, I don't know how I did this, but I watched um, Open Heart Surgery on YouTube. <laughs> um, I really got into it. But I think the key of that was because I loved it. I think if you love it, you can delve into anywhere. Yeah. Um, and then again, with um, with courtroom, with a courtroom thriller of conviction, again, I was a little bit intimidated. I thought, I, you know, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know what I'm talking about. But again, it was a lot of reading. I, there was, it was re- because of um, uh, This Is Going to Hurt by Adam Kay, there was then this huge influx of autobiographies and autobiographies by professionals. Mm-hmm. So, and we had the secret barrister uh, who did the law. Yeah. And there was just so, there was so many more resources. So you could read up on so much and get the ins and outs of what uh, a, a barrister might do or what a heart surgeon might do. And it just, I think, so the books are out there to learn. Um, and it's just, I, yeah, it was just lots and lots of reading. My imposter syndrome doesn't let me talk to 
real professionals. I would be far too shy to talk to a heart surgeon or a barrister. <laughs> uh, I'd feel like, who am I to ask them? And they're too busy. But uh, so I haven't, I haven't got the courage to do that yet. Um, but I do a lot of reading and that's how I get my way. So I, I spend about, at le- I mean, I, the way I overlap writing, I do about six months of research, but there's a, a core month before I even start writing where I'm really reading intensely really getting down the foundations of what I want to do but it's definitely a big part of my writing process and that's usually the first thing I do once I've got the idea and and then so for the rest of your process um are you do you plan out your book in detail or do you sort of pants it what what is your approach to that okay I've tried quite I've tried both approaches with the planning or the pants thing and I think I found my happy medium where I'm a plantster slap right. bang in the middle <laughs> so i i like to i think also writing is really overwhelming writing a book i think we all sit in front of that blank page and go how am i going to write my book's usually a hundred thousand words or a little bit more um and i think how the hell am i going to write all this i don't know what i'm doing every time i'm like whoa this is a lot so i've learned to quell that fear a bit and just create it into manageable chunks i plan it in stages so i do it by apps okay um and it usually breaks out into four or five apps um so I will think, right, I'm going to write the first act and I get to plan that a little bit and then I get to write that and just focus on this. I know where the midpoint might be and I know what the end might be and I'll have an idea of where I want my characters to go and what their arc will be like. But I really only focus on each act and I only move along once I've completed one area. And I think that really helps in terms of pressure and that self-pressure we put on ourselves and also yeah. deadlines. And I just think it, it, for me, that works really well. Um my first draft is always a mess. <laughs> I think um, I, then I, I think there's also that debate. I think quite a lot where some writers, they polish on um, as they go and they don't mm-hmm. move on to another chapter unless it's perfect or some mm-hmm. just get the words down. And again, I'm a bit of both. I will, I might write 10 chapters where I'm just getting the words down and I might even write just to keep the flow going uh, beat between sentences or dialogue just to get a block in there and keep going. But then I can't help but go back before I go to the next act and just polish up a bit. So I think I found my groove in that I just take it step by step. And that's how I found it, it, it the best way to manage. And, and do you do you have beta readers or anything like that that you show this stuff to before you send it to editors or anything? I, when I was self-publishing, I did. I found them so valuable. I think because I didn't have that agent or editor kind of in my corner to vet me. So I had better uh, beta readers and better readers to... Um, just tell me I was on the right path, really. Now, I uh, just share with my agent first, but I don't really share until I've done about three drafts myself. Um, so the first draft I do is a, is a hot mess, but I've, I put the words down. The second one, I edit on my laptop and just really go through and uh, do lots of plot points I might have missed and tie up loose ends and polish a little bit. And then by the third draft, I print out um, what I've done so far with a red pen and I go through then I implement that, then I share it. Um, and then I t- then it's usually a structural edit with the agent or editor, and then all the editorial periods that follow. Uh, but that's kind of what I've done now. I've kind of found my groove in that way. Mm-hmm. And and it does help, doesn't it, as well, to sort of look at, look at the same story, but in different ways. So like printing it out onto paper and then reading it, it, it makes a difference than just looking at it on the screen again, essentially. Totally. And I think also it's so funny, even different screens. So like I, so when I'm working on my laptop, I'll be seeing it in the same way I see it. So I might miss a million mistakes because I'm reading over the same screen, same page. But then sometimes I am, 
because I'm a little bit of a workaholic. So I might I might back it up on my email, let's say. And then that evening, I think I might look at what I wrote today. And I look at it on my phone mm. and I see different things because it's on a different format. It's the weirdest thing. Um, but I really, I I love the process of having it printed out because it feels real. I can turn it, like I, I read paperbacks or hardbacks. Um, so it felt, to me, it feels like my usual reading experience. So I can see it in a different way. I can almost see it as a reader rather than the person who wrote it. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I'm manually scribbling things out and writing notes in red. And I, I think it re- it helps with that process. Um, and then, and then I can't, I actually, I think some people can fear sharing it with an editor or sharing it with an agent or sharing it with beta readers. But I love getting that um, second opinion by that point. I've read it so many times. I I'm like, yeah. please just tell me what's wrong. Just tell me what I need to do now. And I love that feeling of when someone points out something. And usually I already know it's a problem, but I, I haven't wanted to fix it. And then they tell me to, and I have to. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, you know, you've, you've obviously got now, you've got an editor on board who engages with you when you're doing edits on your book. And how does that feel going from a self-pub background to this is it do you quite like having an editor to work with to, to bounce ideas back and forth or do you you know do you find it quite frustrating i i genuinely love having um editors work on it i think uh, i think when i self-published i had um editor i employed freelance editors so i had a gist of and it's kind of the same process in traditional publishing as what i went through then mm. in terms of line edits and things um and structural notes so I kind of, I had it well baked into me that that became my process. I absolutely love it. I think I don't, I, I reading over my work so many times, you can almost get a bit, little bit lost in it. So you can kind of miss areas that might need work or characters that might have, their art might not be as strong as another. And I think having that, and also I think, because you need to give it, you need to send it to your um, editor and they might not be able to read it for a month. Mm-hmm. And that means, as the author, I don't have to do anything with that book for a month. I can come up with something else, or I can promote another book. I don't have to read the thing that has been my with me for six months, and I can't look at it again. So when it so when it comes back to me with notes, I've had a month away from it, let's say, or sometimes two weeks, or whatever the time period may be, and I can look at it with fresh eyes. It's mm-hmm. given me that time to have a break, so I get perspective on it. Um, and I mean, don't get me wrong; sometimes an editor will say. Um, they might want me to cut an area I like. And, and my ethos is the editor is usually 95% right about everything. Mm. I usually change everything they suggest because they're always bang on the money. Um, sometimes there's something that is just so, it's a personal choice that the editor might love a character that doesn't want to die or, and you know they have to die. So you have to make that choice of actually, you know, this works for me and my story. Mm. Um, so I, there's always something I fight for, but most of the time the editor's right. And I, it makes my job easier when they point it out. Um, yeah i I really value it actually i really like it nice and so uh, we've got you've got conviction coming out next month um what is what is next are you already through the next book in terms of drafting or working on that just now well yeah it's it's a bit crazy time for me at the moment so i was very lucky with um do no harm did came out in paperback last month and it was waterstone shred of the month and it was it was it was such an amazing um experience and then uh this month i was meant to finish the current book i'm writing uh, but i've decided to move house which is all, all a bit up in the air um and so my, my, my current deadline is that i've had to push it back a little bit because i published conviction next month so um lots of promotion next month and lots of promotion last month um but i think also writing can also be that form of escape and it tends to be why writers start writing in the first place you mm. get that sense of escape so when i'm going through a crazy house move or um, I mean, I stupidly tripped on a, a staircase last Monday and cracked a rib. 
So I've, oh, so, but then writing, you get distraction from that. You get to turn everything else off, all the life stuff of moving and stress and just escape into another world. Um, and so I, I'm looking forward to, I haven't been able to at the moment because a lot of people will agree, creativity and stress don't really go hand in hand. So this yeah. month's been a bit poor, but I can't wait. I move into my new flat this week and then next week I get to sit down and write and I, before conviction comes out. So I can't wait. Um, but yeah, that's really, so I, that's another moral dilemma thriller. Um, but in new in a new area that I'm exploring, it's it's even so it's it's fast paced and it's got that moral dilemma built in, so it's still very commercial. But my characters are really taking the lead on this one, um, and it's been it's I I don't I don't I don't know about you both, but as a writer, I love a challenge. Every book has to be I, I can never be bored. I have to do yeah. something I'm almost mm-hmm. scared to do, um, and so I, I have to always cover new ground. And this one is new ground, and I'm loving it. Um, and yeah, and see, I just can't wait to escape back to it again. And yeah, and um, in a in a lovely new flat. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> what was the last book that you read? Oh, um, because of moving malarkey, I my mind's gone blank. The one I'm currently through uh, the one i'm reading at the moment i'm loving and it's a testament to how good the writing is because my attention span at the minute is three <laughs> seconds long so for the fact that i keep thinking about this book when i'm going through the, the uh, a moving stress is a miracle it is um by wiz wharton um uh oh ghost girl banana okay. um it's okay. yeah it's yeah it's amazing so yeah it just came out from um potter and stoughton uh yeah wiz wharton it's an amazing a really amazing book about um a mother and daughter who are disconnected. Um, uh, but yeah, and how they kind of find each other is, yeah, it's phenomenal. Highly recommend it. Nice. Cool. Um, what about the last film that you watched? Oh, what was the last film I watched? Uh, I'm just trying to think back to before. I, I've been re-watching all the Taskmaster seasons. I love it. <laughs> my escape. <laughs> but what did I, what film did I watch before that? Actually, oh, it was um, Jessica Chastain's uh, Zero Dark Thirty. Oh, oh right. yeah, okay. that's a good film. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I love, yeah, I love, uh, I love that film, and I love um, a, a, a war biopic actually. Like I, I went through a steer. I always watched Black Hawk Down after that. I before that, yeah, I, yeah, anything that's um, yeah, puts a character in a difficult situation gets me yeah. going. <laughs> uh, and uh, what about the last TV show that you watched or are watching? You said Taskmaster, but are you watching I'll, any sort of drama series or anything? Yeah, like I'll that? put Taskmaster. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they won't take me seriously if I say that. Um, <laughs> Uh, I watched. Um, I I watched with I. Uh, yeah, I watched. Oh, Maryland. Maryland. Uh, it was on ITV. Okay, um, with cool. um, yeah, it was a, like a family drama. Um, yeah, that yeah just aired, and that was good. Nice. Cool. Um, well, the final final thing we do is a super quick fire either or, um, and there's no right answers here really, apart from perhaps one. But we'll start off with uh, medical dramas or courtroom dramas. Oh, that's very clever. I'm going to say courtroom. Cool. Uh, TV or cinema? Oh, TV, because I've got a sofa. <laughs> <laughs> uh, night Owl or Early Bird? Oh, n- Night Owl, definitely. I wish I was an early bird, but it's never been and never will be. <laughs> uh, music or no music when you're listening, uh, when you're writing, sorry. Oh, oh no, can I say both? I think sometimes I love silence, but other times I love listening to film scores. So I'm going to say both, be controversial. Okay, cool. And last one, I'm going to go for audiobook or ebook. Oh, interesting. Um, audiobook, I think with certain types of books, so when I read a biography like Viola Davis, uh, Finding Me, mm-hmm. amazing book. I've read it twice in hardback. 
but I also bought it on audiobook because it's inspirational and I can go for a walk and listen. So I love that portable aspect of it. Oh, that was a great, great chat. I really enjoyed that with Jack. And, mm. you know, as we said at the start of the episode, it's so true that you need to, as a writer, you know, as you say, it's a bit dirty word almost, but marketing is important and and you need to know and have an idea of where this book will sit in the market how will it be marketed what shelf will it be on what comparisons are there before you even start writing and and jack had a he summed up really nicely there when he says that you know writers are the first kind of advertisers marketers of the book because you're pitching it to an agent yeah if, that's if right if you can't I, sell it to them you know they can't sell onwards etc i mean i think it is <laughs> with my own writing it's something i wish i'd done you know if you can we've spoken to other authors like that i'm sure i think it was aisha malik was one that said you know she that's sort right. of tries to think of a of a uh, that sort of pitch line that that log line or whatever you want to call it that hook for the story before mm-hmm. you start writing it because if you have that in your head, then you can write the story to that. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. You're still writing the story. You're still doing that creative process, but you have a focus on it that you can then use when you have to pitch it to, whether it's yeah, to an agent, exactly. whether it's to an editor or whatever. And it must be so much easier having that done before you start writing than yeah. trying to then work out what's the hook afterwards. How do I pitch this? And yeah. that's, but every writer hates doing that, trying, trying to put it into 100 words, whatever. You know, if yeah, you have that exactly. at, at the start. And that's a great just you know, like a like kind of beacon to follow through that kind of horrible middle part of the draft, except Yeah, that's right. That and way. if you've got that, then that, you know, that having that hundred words or whatever it is, as you say, that could be your plan. If you're more of a panther, yeah, yeah, at, least yeah, you yeah, have a, at least you have that beacon, as you say, to always guide you back towards what you're meant to be yeah. or wanting to write when you set out on, on the writing journey that for that particular story so it makes it, it makes it sound so easy doesn't it Jack? yeah no, this, it's I mean, simple so why, why exactly, didn't I think yeah. of it before um but yeah it, so his latest book as you said conviction is just out now so you can go and pick that one up and thanks very much to jack for coming on to the podcast and um, but next week we've got another great guest yeah next week we're chatting with the wonderful heidi swain who has written a smorgasbord uh which is, i believe is a lot yeah thank you um of books um a romantic um, persuasion, I believe, and it's uh, another author we've chatted to before. A similar author who does a kind of summer Christmas book twice a year. So that you know, I always find these authors fascinating because it's such a you've got you've got the the stress of writing a book in six months, get it out there. You've got to, you're juggling two different groups of fans. You're trying to just you know you've got to keep that same theme going but keeping it fresh. I find that incredible. Yeah, and we we get into all of that and. and you know, how you get into that sort of routine and come up with ideas for these types of books every year. And writing so, Christmas books in summer. I mean, even yeah, the, exactly. getting the mindset of that must be difficult. Exactly. Maybe you have to eat turkey throughout the year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Put a Christmas tree up and stuff. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, yeah, please do join us for that episode. But if you enjoyed this episode uh, or any previous episode, please do take the time to rate and review us on your favourite podcast app. That really helps us to continue to get great guests on the podcast. And if you want to get in touch, you can always drop us an email to podcast at rightgear.co.uk. Or if you would like to send us a tweet in the rapidly failing Twitter machine, yes, you can exactly. find There's us. no guarantee we'll see it. <laughs> it's at UK page one. 
or you can go uh, via Mastodon, which I believe is one of the many alternative Twitters nowadays, which is writing.exchange forward slash at page one pod. Or you can head to our YouTube channel, which is uh, at page one podcast. At page one podcast. YouTube.com. YouTube. At page one podcast. Yeah, and, and uh, no doubt we will be forced to sign up for Blue Sky or some other app <laughs> because I just love spending so much time on social media. I mean, I, I just, I'm going to put my feet back up again. This is me. I've just, yeah. till next week. This is, it's a new one as well. So not threads or something. Yeah, it's the Meta Facebook yeah. one. Uh-huh. Launches Brilliant. on Thursday. So Great. So oh, first in line there, Mark. You, you'll be signing up for that, Tarek, yeah, for yeah, us? Yeah, Doing I'll, all that work? I'll leave, that one, leave that one to me. Social I'll, media I'll, manager. I'll take care of that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but otherwise, have a great week and we will speak to you next episode. See you later.